Good evening. Well, 20 months ago, I went down to the English Channel and made a video. At that stage, a few boats were coming across, but I could see there might just as well have been a sign on the White Cliffs of Dover which said, everyone is welcome. And I predicted this would get worse. I've been right all the way through. Although I do admit my prediction made earlier this year that 20,000 would cross the English Channel has proved to be completely and utterly wrong. We're headed quite quickly towards 30,000. And unless something is done, by this time next year, the numbers will be much, much higher still. Saturday's figures were released. 886 made it across the English Channel on Saturday. And we've just in the last half an hour had the figures released for last Tuesday. Yep, taking them almost a whole week to produce the figures. They're telling us 1,131 crossed the channel on that day. Well, if that's the number, why has it taken them nearly a week to give us that number? And I have to say, experienced channel watchers are very, very sceptical about that figure indeed. It isn't just the cost, the huge operational cost, the police, the border force, the RNLI, the search and rescue helicopter, the ambulances indeed. Yes, ambulances going, waiting to see if anybody is seriously ill coming off those boats when, of course, ambulance shortages, long waiting times are known. It isn't just that. It isn't just the cost of putting people up in migrant hotels of the £40 a week spending money. No, that's bad enough. And it isn't just the cultural problem, but a very large number of young men coming into our country from completely different cultures and very different attitudes in the ways that women should be treated. And, and goodness me, haven't some, of, haven't, haven't some of the Swedish cities seen that? Now, the real problem is this is a major national security crisis. We talked last week about the fact that the Lithuanian authorities this year have identified 24 men linked to ISIS or Boko Haram. And in the light of what happened in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, again, a failed asylum seeker going out and attempting to commit an atrocity. We have no idea who these people are that are coming into our country. We just know that the vast, vast majority of them are single young men. Now, time and again, Pretty Patel has said, we will end this, we have the solution. Today in the House of Commons, she's admitted there is no silver bullet. And I have to say, I think her position is, is really seriously under threat because Stephen Barclay has now been promoted and is running the task force, the new migrant task force. So she's been demoted already. Confidence is falling in this government. They are not looking after our national security. And yes, I have been approached by senior donors and many members of the public urging me to return to the political fray. Well, my gut instinct to that is no, I've done it all before. I also feel that GB News is very important, a pioneering new news channel in this country taking on the established consensus. And the work we do here, I think, is very important in terms of the narrative. But never say never. I will give it some serious thought because I still think, unless they act, this crisis will get a lot, lot worse. My question tonight to you is, can Pretty survive? Give me your thoughts, your views on that. GBviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet at GBnews and 
You can also send in questions for the end of the show for Barrage the Farage. Now, Pretty Patel was up in the House of Commons today taking questions, and GB News's Home Affairs and Security Editor Mark White joins me now. Mark, how did she get on in the House of Commons? Well, I mean, it was the stock answers from Pretty Patel about what they were doing to try to get on top of this crisis with the borders and asylum bill, how they were looking to make it a one-stop process that once you were refused, you can't go on this merry-go-round of reappealing to try yeah. and stay in the country, a process that can last for a number of years. Uh, that and the fact that she wants to ensure that more is done on the French side of the border uh, to work closer with the French counterparts. Oh, really? Yeah. Great. <laughs> so, anyway, look, these, these answers have all been rehearsed before and we've heard it before. I think what was different about the Commons today is that we've been talking for some time about how concerned the public are about this. It is a key issue for them in terms of things they worry about. It seems that the Commons is getting that message. Yeah, and interestingly, Mark, other media very reluctantly covering this issue, not recognising just how vitally important it is. Well, they are covering it now, and certainly, as I say, MP after MP. There was an urgent question on this, and we went into Home Office questions, and again, the questions kept coming on this. Here's just a selection hmm. of the criticism and questions that the Home Secretary faced. Some hotels are now becoming full-time immigration centres and adults residing there are in limbo in our town centres. Can the Secretary of State tell me what is the timescale for processing these individuals and the timescale to revert this accommodation back to hotels? One of the big reasons for hotels needing to be used is because the asylum processing system has basically imploded. The share of applications that received an initial decision within six months fell from 87% in 2014 to just 20% in 2019. It says on the government website that if you've been refused asylum, you will still be given somewhere to live and still be given £39.63 per person for food, clothing and toiletries. Why on earth is the state still providing accommodation and money for people who have been refused asylum, surely that's when government support should be turned off. Given tens of millions of pounds for the French, including night vision equipment, ANPR technology and access to drones, isn't it completely disgraceful, as we've seen in recent days, for large groups of French police to be pictured on the beaches in France, waving large boats of migrants coming across the Channel? The sensible and humane way to deal with this problem is for the French to agree a returns policy so that immigrants turning up on our shore could be given a hot cup of tea, ensure they had warm clothing and put back on the first ferry to Calais. We told the people at the referendum, us Brexiteers, that we would take back control. It's clear that in this we have lost control. If you tell if you tell the most desperate economic migrants in the world that we will provide a free border service, taxi service across the channel, we will never deport you, we will put you up in a hotel as long as you like, is it any wonder that more and more come? This is now a national emergency. There you are, strong words from Sir Edward Lee, but I rather agree with him. Yes, and there's no doubt that Priti Patel is under a lot of pressure here, Nigel. She's popular within the party. 
for the Prime still? Minister... Still? Still, yeah, I think so. And for the Prime Minister, she's handy to have there. It deflects <laughs> any criticism on this particular issue for the time being. But the longer this carries on and the more that keep coming, the more and more difficult it is going to be. They talk about a returns policy in France. Can you ever see in a month of Sundays that the French are going to say, yeah, just turn them round and we'll take them back? It's not going to happen. No, and the appointment of Stephen Barclay to head up this task force to get different government departments together looking at this problem, I mean, that effectively is a demotion for Patel, isn't it? Well, it's certainly an acknowledgement that this is such a crisis now that it needs to be taken out of the Home Secretary's direct control and someone with a focus only on this uh, to look at what they can do. I mean, this was Dungeness on Saturday there yeah. with more... Uh, lifeboats coming ashore, there were boats that made it ashore, over 800, close to 900 that came across on Saturday. That figure finally being released by the Home Office this afternoon of 1,131 coming last Tuesday. It's a big crisis. It's remarkable to think, Nigel, that we are now over the, the mark of three times as yes. many people coming this year, so far, yeah, it wasn't not reached the end of the year. It wasn't long ago you and I were talking about the fact that it had doubled yes. the previous year. Mark, literally just about a month ago. Yeah, literally about yeah. six weeks ago yeah. it was. Mark, thank you for joining us. Well, rest assured, we will be covering this here on GB News. It's in fact the only place you can actually get true, accurate numbers and predictions, and we've got a lot of it right. Now, what is the impact of this on Priti Patel, on Boris Johnson, indeed on the Conservative Party itself? Let's speak to Conservative commentator, columnist for the article and former advisor to the Conservative Party, Ali Mirage. Ali, good evening. Evening, Nigel. Great to be with you. So, according to polling, this issue, as I always thought it would be, is now the number one issue amongst Conservative voters and Leave voters in the country. Is the party really now feeling this? It is feeling it, Nigel, and I think you've seen a lot of anger on the backbenches about this issue. You heard it in Parliament just now with some of the contributions from the backbenches. And you've also got to bear in mind, Nigel, that this comes on the back of a very, very difficult few weeks for the government, which has been totally and utterly self-inflicted by the Prime Minister. The whole Owen Patterson second jobs issue has sort of morphed into this big scandal. You've got the migrant crisis with 25,000 people so far having come across the channel this year, 1,000 people a day coming across, and all Pretty Patel's various measures that she's taken, including looking at hiring boats to create waves in the ocean to try and push these boats back towards France, yeah. putting people, sending people to Ascension Island, again, shelves, 54 million now being promised to the French government to do drone patrols on its borders. Nothing seems to be working. The latest thing was, Nigel, that uh, we were going to be apparently in talks with Albania to try and process these people offshore, which yeah. the Albanian government distanced itself on immediately. So, this, and this is also lost in the last few days, last week, as you know, also some consternation amongst MPs, particularly in the north, about the the fact that HS2, the eastern leg of HS2, was shelved, uh, and the northern powerhouse rail was kicked into the long grass. So, let's just put it this way: there are a lot of people on the Tory backbenches that are feeling rather unloved and believe that. You know, levelling up in its broadest sense is not happening. They feel very, very passionate about the migrant crisis. I mean, uh, one of the MPs there said that, you know, the, 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 the last mantra of the last election was to get Brexit done. Well, as one Tory back then put it to me um, uh, over the weekend, they now want Boris to get boats done. 
right? So this is where we are at the moment. It's a very, very yeah. difficult position for the Prime Minister. And from a lead of five points, Nigel, a few weeks ago, they're now trailing Labour in the polls. Yeah, I mean, amazing, isn't it, how with a majority of, of, of 80 after the last election, within the space of a couple of years, it can be like this. But, but let me ask you, can Priti Patel survive this? Or is the analysis of our Home Affairs correspondent right that it kind of suits Boris to have her in the job taking the flak? Well, I think she will survive for now. You know that Boris Johnson is very loyal to people around him, perhaps at times too loyal. And I think it is a bit of an indictment uh, that Steve Barclay, who's been brought in, he's been very competent at dealing with the fuel shortages issue and the HGV driver issues, the supply chain issues we've been having. So he's a, he's a sensible guy who's been brought in to sort of help deal with this issue. But look, if you go back to 2020, when on the back of the bullying row, the investigation into the bullying row, when the, the advisor on the minister, Alex Allen, resigned after his report was submitted and the prime minister patently ignored it, uh, you can see the prime minister is very loyal to people around him, particularly Priti Patel. Look, I've got nothing against Priti Patel. This is a very difficult issue to deal with, Nigel. You're tracking it for longer than anyone else, quite frankly. Um, but it is reaching a point now where it's beginning to eat into uh, the Tory polls. And certainly MPs uh, are getting this in their mailbags and getting it in the net from their constituents. And it, if, you, if you're saying that one of the key reasons for Brexit was to control the borders, this is patently an indictment of the fact that we're not controlling them. So it looks very, very, optic, very, very bad for the government to be dealt with. Absolutely, Ali Mirage. Thank you for joining us. And I think uh, Sir Edward Lee's comments at the House of Commons today reflected exactly those last points that you were making. Ali, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Now, over the weekend, significant rioting. Brussels, The Hague, Rotterdam, Vienna, parts of Croatia, many European cities saw... I mean, when I say riots, I don't mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's brother and a few protesters. I mean real riots, you know, cars being set fire to and all the rest of it. And this is because of European lockdowns. Now, Austria have gone much further than anybody. They began last week by locking down the unvaccinated, which I talked about on this show and how monstrous I felt that it was. Um, but now they've locked down the country because COVID deaths have risen quite sharply. And they're saying that by February, the vaccine must be mandatory. And my feeling is that many of the other protests that went on around Europe, and yes, people don't like being made to wear face masks and all the rest of it, I think people are fearing more European lockdowns, perhaps Germany coming within the space of a few days, and this idea that mandatory vaccines could well be introduced. Now, I, I may be wrong about this in terms of the psychology, but I, I think generally we've been pretty compliant since March last year for what we've been asked to do in the name of fighting the pandemic. I sense some of that is wearing thin. And 12% of this country, for argument's sake, have not had the vaccine. And it doesn't matter how much you try and push them, bully them, educate them, do whatever you want to do. I don't see that figure changing and 50,000 people leaving the care sector the other week rather proved that to me. I think the Austrian government have bitten off more than they can chew. I think this is a battle they can't win. But to get into the psychology of it all, I'm joined by Emma Kenny. Emma, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. It's, it, you know, you're a psychologist. This is what really interests me. 
I've got a feeling, Emma, that, you know, governments have won virtually every battle through this pandemic. The size of government, the scope of government, the centralisation of government has grown right across the Western world, and they've pretty much got away with it. But I've just got a feeling uh, that in Austria, you know, if they tell people... And, and Schallenberg, you know, he said, didn't he? You know, there he is, the Chancellor, saying that the police would be on the streets enforcing this. I mean, it's almost unimaginable that this is going on again in Austria. I just get a feeling that people aren't going to comply. What's your take on this? I mean, I think I agree with everything you've said. And certainly, I think one of the most amazing things about human beings is that we are mostly compliant. So we like the status quo, particularly in democracies. The irony is that when people think that we're out there wanting to do terrible things by protesting, etc., it's never the way. It's always the last resort. So actually, we like order. So when people stop having that order because things are going wrong and the world is being shaped in a way that we're not happy with, it's really important for governments to listen. Now, the thing about protesting is you're going to get a lot more from a peaceful protest than you are from a riot or a rageful one. Even though tensions run high, there's a lot of research. Now, there's an amazing, amazing political scientist called Erica Chinoweth, and she actually spent her time researching the impact of these kind of episodes. And the truth is, all you need is about 3.5% of the population to say no, and everything crumbles. So the reality is, if 3.5% of people in the UK or across Europe in individual countries say no, it's not going to happen ever. And that's why protesting is so important, so effective, but should always be very peaceful. That's the irony that I think sometimes people think that the louder, the more aggressive, the more violent, that actually becomes quite exclusionary. You have to be quite able-bodied. You have to have a particular mindset, maybe the warrior gene going on in you. But when you have peaceful protests, and you think about in 1986, the Filipinos totally changed with the prayer of the people power movement. You had the, Mar you know, the Marcus regime folded on the fourth day with that. 2003, you had the people of Georgia. They got rid of their leader yeah. through the Bloodless Rose Revolution. Yeah. These things have make a difference. So I think you're right. I don't think there's a chance that they'll be able to mandate in countries where we're used to having democracy, because no. if ever you were going to say there was something against it, that's it. And of course, normally... Emma, in a democracy, of course, we don't need to riot and protest because we've got other parties right. to vote for. It's just that when it comes to uh, lockdowns, uh, there hasn't been that much opposition. Although it's fair to say in Austria that the Freedom Party are opposing the mandate. But, uh, no, very interesting, the fact that 3.5%, if they're utterly determined and protesting peacefully, uh, can be an, a completely unbreakable barrier for a government. It's not a figure I've Absolutely. heard before. It's not a figure I've heard before. And let me tell you, it's now not a figure I'm going to forget. So thank you for coming on to GB News and giving us that contribution. Thanks for having me. In a moment, we'll look at Boris Johnson's speech to the CBI, where he praises Peppa Pig. No, really, he does. Back in a minute with that. On the day that the Home Secretary says there is no silver bullet, having told us repeatedly before she was going to stop the cross-channel illegal migrant problem, I'm asking you, can the Home Secretary survive? Hannah responds by saying, no, she can't. I like to think she at least tried, but I haven't seen anything that convinces me otherwise. One viewer says, sack Pretty Patel. If they don't, bye-bye, red wall voters. Well, you know, we took uh, the show up to Sunderland 
the other week, and it was astonishing. I mean, this was absolutely the number one issue, and it is right across the northeast. just for example. Paul says, I see loads of moaning, but what would you actually do? There is no real winner. Uh, no, I get that, and we'll talk more in the next few days about what absolutely needs to be done, not that I haven't in the past. Emden on Twitter says, Pretty Patel is way out of her depth. Gary says, cope. Prissy has no intention of doing anything. She keeps making noises she thinks we want to hear. Yes, that is exactly what she's been doing. Now to China and to Peng Shui, a tennis star once ranked as highly as the 14th best in the world. And she made a pretty serious claim against a very senior Chinese politician, said she'd been raped, and effectively she has disappeared. Now, she'd been missing for a few days, but overnight, Chinese state media have shown us some videos of her. And this is designed to reassure us. There she is uh, in a restaurant, having dinner. Um, and this is to say to us, don't worry, everything is absolutely fine. Well, uh, there are many who are not convinced by this. Many that are not convinced that she's not there under duress, that she's not able to speak freely, and she did have a social media channel. Uh, that, of course, has been closed down. Well, joining me to try to assess what all of this means is a seasoned China observer, Charles Parson, a former diplomat who worked in China and Hong Kong for 22 years and is currently senior associate at the RUSI. Charles, good evening. Good evening. So the video was put out on Chinese state media, sent around the world, and this was designed to reassure us that Peng was OK. How does it all look to you? Well, I don't think anyone's reassured, and I don't think they're reassured by the IOC's uh, putting up the news that it spoke, that it's uh, that Mr. Bach spoke for 30 minutes to uh, Peng Shui and, and, and others. Um, because there's no... Uh, I mean, China has a long, long history of making people say what it wants in, on, on the television. So um, who knows? But I, I suspect that she's in, in, in deep trouble. But while the spotlight stays on her, uh, I, I think she's relatively safe. Once the spotlight goes, uh, I don't think I'd like to be in her shoes. Yes, I mean, various tennis, tennis associations were not uh, as convinced as the IOC uh, seemed to be. Um, I also noticed... Um, some quite big publicity once again about the Uyghurs um, and the camps they go into. But, Charles, how is it that these stories, uh, which, if they were taking place anywhere else in the world, would be seen to be human rights abuses, serious human rights abuses, and there would be calls for sanctions, there would be calls for trade embargoes of all kinds. Why is it that with China... This kind of thing happens and generally gets very little comment. I think it's a question of size and I think it's a question of, of, of money where our economies are so deeply intertwined with the Chinese economy uh, in, in terms of uh, supplies and, and, and goods that they manufacture. Uh, and a lot of people make a lot of money out of, out of China as well. Um, and people are not prepared to sacrifice that even if they could, because so much is, uh, comes from China, that I think if we put sanctions on it, there would be uh, very little in our Christmas stockings and presents. Yeah. 
Yeah, it would be. It, would be, it really would be a sort of shooting ourselves in the foot in that sense. We become so reliant, so dependent. You've been a China observer for a very, very long time. Uh, this president, he's been there for about a decade now. Um, is he really, is he really at the heart of this problem in terms of Chinese aggression? I and mean, we're now seeing, um, we don't quite know the truth of it, but we're now seeing uh, Chinese missiles being used. We're seeing massive growth of the Chinese military. We're seeing some pretty bellicose statements being made about Taiwan. Is this all down to the all-powerful President Xi? I didn't put it, put it all down to him because I think it started before he came to power. I think if, if you want to actually put a date on when China started tightening up both its ideology and, and its, uh, in a sense, uh, bad relations with the West or less good relations with the West, uh, that happened in 2008, 2009. But when Xi, Xi Jinping came to power, undoubtedly um, things, he's an accelerator. He moved things on a lot faster and, and a lot deeper. Tell me, Charles, do you go back and visit China and Hong Kong these days? Well, I, mean, I, I know the pandemic's there, but that aside, would you? Uh, no, I've been told it would be unwise for me to go back. I was um, a good friend of Michael Kovrick's, uh, the Canadian guy who was an ex-diplomat who was taken hostage and spent nearly, nearly, well, well over two and a half years uh, in detention completely illegally. The chances are that if there was a, a big spat with the UK, they might well, it'd be a very small chance that they'd take a hostage. It'd be even smaller chance that they'd take me. But that's not a way that I intend to spend my dying years in a Chinese prison. Thank you. No, absolutely. And Charles, thank you for coming on and having that frank conversation about China. Thank you. Well, let's hope she's OK. But it's interesting, isn't it, what Charles said there, that all the while she's in the spotlight, she's probably relatively safe. But as soon as she's not, who is to say? So it's the CBI. Big get-together today. Three conferences being held by the CBI around the country. Keir Starmer giving a big speech. All the people you would expect to be there. And the CBI, of course, for those that don't know, represent the really big businesses. In many cases, effectively, multinational businesses, far more than their British businesses. They've always had a very, very powerful voice. They're responsible, in terms of employment, for about 8 to 9% of the overall UK workforce. I've often felt their voice has actually been disproportionate to their size, but it's still there, and they're still important. And the other person that spoke of note today at the CBI was indeed the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Let's see how he got on. Uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Hands up anybody who's been to Peppa Pig World. Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Uh, it, 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 it has... Uh, a uh, very safe streets, uh, discipline in schools. Well, talk about my what the Farage moment. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Bumbling, stumbling, not in control of his brief or his detail in any way at all. 
probably far more used to doing after-dinner speeches and sort of waving his arms around and ruffling his hair. But that looked amateur beyond belief. And then we moved on to what I thought there was, I don't know how you felt, but I thought something that was utterly cringeworthy. You see, not long ago, when Boris got up and spoke in that way, we all used to laugh. Well, with the Peppa Pig incident, it shows you that something has fundamentally changed in terms of this Prime Minister's standing. Because, Boris, we're not laughing now. We're really, really not laughing now. It isn't funny. Uh, and you sort of get the impression that the man doesn't really take the job of being Prime Minister all that seriously. I don't want someone who's dull as ditch water. I want someone with personality. But when somebody in public tries to be funny and it falls flat, then that is a very serious problem. And this Prime Minister is in deep trouble. We talked with Annie Mirage earlier on, Conservative commentator and former advisor to the party about it. It's happening on all sides, isn't it? You know, whether it's the migrant crisis, whether it's the Owen Patterson uh, case, whatever it is, uh, the Prime Minister appears to be in trouble. And they U-turn on virtually everything. It's a case, really, I think, uh, that they're frankly become more like followers than they are leaders. And I've always said this, Boris is a great cheerleader, but is he a good leader? And that, I think, is where the question is. And some are beginning to make up their minds that he's not. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with mover and shaker, friend of Donald Trump, big wig in the Republican Party, Eric Prince. Well, joining me on this Talking Pints special is somebody, former Navy SEAL, founder of a company called Blackwater, absolute through and through Republican, friend, donor and supporter of Donald Trump. I'm joined by Eric Prince. Eric, welcome. Thank you. Nice to, to be here. And welcome to Talking Pints. Cheers. You don't do this in America on television, do you? I'm all for it. I've got to ask you this question. Your sister, Betsy. Yep. Of course, who I've met, was the education boss in Trump's cabinet, uh, four years the president had. And I know that coronavirus came along and messed things up. But how on earth did the Republicans manage to lose to Joe Biden last November? I think the left flogged the COVID fear and um, uh, the pandemic into something that just drove voters to uh, to misery. And, you know, the the rate of death in America the last 10 years has been the same. This is a pandemic of fear, and uh, the left use it as a political tool to bludgeon the president. You see, since then, and, and look, you know, I know you're a friend and supporter of President Trump, as indeed am I. The narrative that the election was stolen, is it time they dropped all of that? <clears throat> There's 300, what's not up for debate is that the Democrats used 300 different lawsuits to change how and why and when votes are counted in a number of those key counties. Whether that resulted in voter fraud remains to be seen. Still audits going on. But the fact is, why are there 300 lawsuits targeted at specific swing districts and swing counties even? Uh, you know, what did, what did Beria say? The, the, the KGB head under Stalin? It doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts well, the votes. I know. And that is the extremely dangerous to any democracy, to any republic. Um, Voter integrity matters, um, both right and left. I'm happy that the election in Virginia was just uh, 
successful and tight and hard won, and hopefully it bodes well for uh, for other voting. Well, as the well. midterms, of course. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. fascinating. You know, we have a general election here once every four or five years. And much as we have local elections and London mayoral elections and Scottish Parliament elections, really it's once every four or five years is the big event. In America, yeah. elections are perpetual, it seems. I mean, it never really ends the process. Yeah. So you've got the midterms this yeah. year. And and that's looking very, very positive for the Republicans. There's enormous momentum. The one thing where um, I think uh, the, ho- the total amount of votes in the swing states in the last presidential election was a total of 170,000 votes. President Trump signed a criminal justice reform allowing 17 million felons to vote again. Um, so 1% of that 17 million was the total swing vote. But in in Florida, the president tripled his margin of victory over uh, Hillary Clinton uh, in 2016 because DeSantis said, yes, if you're a felon, you can vote, but you still have to pay whatever past due bills mm, yeah, you have yeah. from your time of incarceration, you know, $200, $500, whatever. So he was um, tight in the administrative process, and that made a difference. Uh, did not make a difference in Georgia and Arizona and those states the president lost. Now, your relationship with American presidents goes way back. Your family have been a staunch Republican, staunch Christian family. And it was when George Bush was in Iraq, and you set up Blackwater, and you get some pretty significant security contracts, government contracts. Just for a British audience that may not know the story fully, just tell us what Blackwater was and what you were doing in Iraq. Well, actually, I started under the Clinton administration. Did you? Yeah. I I started, my my father died, and my wife got cancer all within a few months of each other while I was in the Navy. And I got out, and I started Blackwater to stay connected to the SEAL teams, and that was 96 already. Okay. SEAL teams have been using private facilities like that since the 1970s, but no one had done it on an industrial scale because of my father's success, I was able to finance an organization like that. And um, you know, I got out of the Navy and I knew nothing of government contracting, nothing of land developing. And my father was gone. But, you know, you go back to the well that, you know, I, I found five other SEALs that I'd worked with and we figured it out. And uh, it was a training, training business, which grew into security and aviation support, kind of the full spectrum of support operations to the U.S. military from the earliest recruiting side up to uh, medevac and supply at the very end. But the end big of job was after the invasion Correct. of Iraq, and that's when you got the really big contract. And I'm just, I'm fascinated. You know, big firm, I know you had some big controversies, and, 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 and this whole area is controversial. Firms like Blackwater, are they there to provide security, or, or are they almost a mercenary army? Uh, in our case, the big contracts were providing security for the State Department, literally doing diplomatic security because they could not scale to enough qualified people to do that. And so we had a couple of thousand people doing that job, dozens of aircraft, et cetera. By any definition, even the Oxford Dictionary, it doesn't make them a mercenary. They were Americans working for the U.S. government on an overseas contingency operation for the U.S. government. So well away from mercenary. The role of military contractors in history is much more common than you think. And the Russians have certainly woken up to that. Um, and they've deployed a, a hybrid Wagner force effectively yeah. in Ukraine, the Donbass, Crimea, um, Syria, um, and throughout Africa. So it, the countries will turn to that again as Western militaries are proving to be very expensive, very inflexible, and not very capable at finishing the job when it comes to the Iraq or Afghanistan type insurgencies. Yeah, we've done it. I mean, Wellington used all sorts of different armies from Hanover and elsewhere. So we've done it in the past ourselves. Even the Hessians in yeah, the, yeah, uh, in the I colonies. Mean, no, I know, yes. I know, I know. But, and, and I'm not opposed to that, but 
you know, it speaks to the the melding of private sector innovation. Look, America was founded by by the Jap the Jamestown, Massachusetts Bay, and Plymouth companies listed on the London yeah. Stock Exchange. They hired private military contractors like Miles Standish and John Smith, who used to serve in the British Army. I mean, the, the, the America's flag is nothing but a repurposed East India Company flag. Well, I think it's a little so truth America, in that. Yeah. America's history drives directly out of the history of private military contractors. How do you, Eric, you know, as somebody that is a friend of Donald Trump's, you've given money to the campaign, your sister was in his cabinet, is he the right man to stay as leader of the, of the Republican Party and movement? I hope that he's learned his lessons from the first term before he considers running again. Mm -hmm. uh, he never really got control of the, the entire national security apparatus or the whole bureaucracy writ large. And I think the election was, uh, was his to lose, uh, except that he just, he couldn't let some little things go and he kept saying offensive things and he kind of lost the, the middle of America, the American housewife. The kind of suburban vote. Exactly. Yeah. And who's now paying 10 and 20% more for inflated goods and all the rest. And so they're, they're realizing they have, I'm certainly they have, they have buyers voters remorse. But being a, uh, a humble servant leader that is uh, there to serve the people is what they want. It's what, desperately what America needs. So Trump needs to sort of tone it down a bit, basically. He can be as aggressive as he can, but he can say it with a smile. Yeah. Which in private he does. Yeah. That's exactly. been my frustration with him is you meet him in private at a social event. He's brilliant with people and he's yes. funny and there's a lighter touch and he gets on the stage. And you he have to, to have punch the lights out. Be thicker skinned. Yeah, maybe you're right. Well, yeah, well, maybe he'll listen, but he is 75. And, you know, can you teach an old dog? Tend to set in your, own, in your ways at that point, yes. No, it'll be very interesting to see. And Eric, tell me, you know, we've been, for the last 100 years or more, our two countries incredibly close. Yep. Close in terms of military alliances, shared battles, shared intelligence. We're still the biggest foreign investor in the USA. Good. And you're by far the biggest foreign investor in this country. And the kind of the concept that we're cousins in a way that resonates here with an awful lot of people. And I still think in America, it does resonate with a significant number of people. How do you see Britain, Brexit Britain? How do you look upon us at the moment? Uh, well, let me say, I, I have I have such an affinity for Britain that one of my sons is named after Sir Winston, so. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, I think Britain sits at an amazing inflection point. And I think um, it's almost like uh, if you go back to the 1600s when Britain was not the top tier economy, but it was, uh, a peer amongst others that were challenging it, and Britain unleashed its private sector. It's what founded America. It's what went went abroad with the East India Company. The, the natural capital hub that is here in London, London, the capital markets with the reach you have across the Commonwealth of Nations, um, with your affinity and very good expertise of your resources sector, your prior military veterans, to bring security and stability, you can you can easily serve the indispensable role of going abroad. So global, and, and, and so global absolutely, Britain. absolutely. Don't wait for the United States to lead all of this because clearly Washington is adrift in uh, in policy and decision. And I think uh, the opponents of Western civilization are pushing towards more and more statism. Hmm. And as I was just speaking at the Africa Energy Week conference, and they so desperately want. Western investors, Western uh, expertise, and the stability that comes from the rule of law of the of the Westphalian state. Well, you sound like an advocate for Brexit Britain in every Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I get that very clearly. I want to finish with two big questions, difficult questions. 
Ukraine and Taiwan. Let's start with Ukraine. Extraordinary, isn't it, that the European Union has made itself almost completely dependent upon Putin for gas, which strikes yep. me as being a, a ridiculous strategic thing to do. But as we know, in Belarus, right at the moment, they are literally... Weaponizing migrants. Weaponizing them, pushing them over the border. Even stories today that some of the migrants could even be armed now with smoke bombs, etc. Then we have a very large number of Russian troops massed at the Ukrainian border. How big a threat is Putin to peace? You know, the Russians pitched me to open a private military con company in Russia in 2011, before they ever did Wagner. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that they took the eastern part of Ukraine with a hybrid warfare approach is the most likely way they would try to do something again. I think those troops are there mostly as a positioning point for gas uh, and for yeah. pipelines. Uh, I think it's going to be a cold, expensive winter in Europe because of the uh, the deficit in energy. Yeah. Shutting down nuclear power plants and coal. Uh, look, it's wonderful to have a goal for zero carbon, but the hydrocarbons are going to have a big place in heating oh, no, and no, powering no. the world for a long time. I don't think that's right at all. Boris Johnson has told us that wind technology is the way forward, and we're going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. And and that's it's great to hope, but it's uh, but it's also bad when the wind stops blowing. I mean, te Texas had a calamitous disaster last spring. Texas, the energy capital of America, yeah. and. Wouldn't you know, the, a blizzard, the wind stopped blowing and the sun didn't shine. And Texas was was hours away from a complete grid shutdown. That's a bit of a warning to us. I think. Absolutely. And finally, China, or as Donald Trump says, China. I mean, Taiwan, strategically now so important in terms of semiconductors yep. and, 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 and even however many billions American firms spend, it's going to take years to catch up with where Taiwan are. How big a threat is Taiwan under? And what would we do? What would we do if there was a military invasion the, of Taiwan? The Chinese Communist Party has certainly made it their mission to retake Taiwan. Taiwan is such an irritant to them because it is it is Han China, but on freedom, not under one party control. Mm. And so they have to they have to bluster against it. They have to move against it. I would predict a more of a hybrid warfare approach where they try to take some of the small islands, not the main island of Formosa, but the other yeah. islands occupied, and they will test the West and see what we do. And so the West has to be ready for some clever, unconventional responses to do that as a way to dial up the pressure and to realize that, that it's a pain point. Or Taiwan should should uh, load up a plane full of cash and fly to India and buy three nukes. Nuclear deterrence would end this equation, would end this discussion quickly. Well, that was a pretty decisive end to Talking Pints with Eric Prince, and we thank him for coming on. And Eric Prince was here in London last week, and I pre-recorded that last Thursday. Right, we're coming towards the end of the show. I've left some time for Barrage the Farage, because I know you do send in an awful lot of questions. OK, someone, anonymous, asks me, do you think the migrant crisis is an even bigger issue than Brexit? Well, in some ways, it's a very similar issue, isn't it? Because one of the most decisive reasons that Brexit happened was people voted to take back control of their borders. And patently, we are not doing that in any way at all. In fact, we're being humiliated, frankly, on the world stage on a daily basis. And if you talk about migration, whether it's illegal, in the case of a channel, or whether it's legal, you know, net migration, net legal migration running at 300,000 a year, 
just puts the most enormous pressure on the health service, on housing, on all of our public services. And it can fundamentally change the shape of our communities. So I think in many ways, uh, the immigration issue has been the biggest issue in British politics for the last 15 years. And yet people find it too awkward, too difficult. They'd rather simply not talk about it. Well, now they can't do that. Gareth asks, who would be your worst and best celebrity to be in the I'm a Celebrity Jungle with? So, literally, every single year, the Daily Star, they begin it, and it's often followed on by some of the other tabloids. There's the story that Nigel Farage has been asked to go into the jungle. And I have to say, I have been asked several times to go into the jungle. I don't want to go into the jungle. Um, I, I really just don't want to do it, even though they offer an awful lot of money to do so. Uh, if I was there in the jungle, um, well, I'm not going to name names right at this stage, but I'd want somebody with me that was practical, because I'm not terribly practical, somebody that could mend things if they broke. And, you know, the worst nightmare to be there with. I, I think Theresa May's top of that list, to be honest with you. Hamish asks, is a general election needed? Well, no, it's not needed because the last one was less than two years ago and the government has a big working majority. And I tell you what, there isn't going to be one. Paul asks me, do you think there will be a U-turn <laughs> by the government in terms of public transport in the north? And um, honestly, Anything's possible with this lot. U-turns uh, are an absolute, fact, sort of rapid handbrake turns, I think, better described. Something Boris is incredibly good at. Just think about the other week after the Owen Patterson situation. Within 24 hours, they've done a complete 180. When it comes to that spur line going up from the West Midlands through the East Midlands, um, I thought that was the one part of the HS2 project I rather liked. One last question. Jimmy on GB Views asks me, can't we take one of our many Scottish islands and turn it into a migrant processing centre, just like what Australia did? Well, we'd need, I think, to get some support and approval from Nicola Sturgeon. That wouldn't be easy. But you know what? We will, over the course of the next few weeks, talk more about the solutions. And, and, and I, think, I think that really, really matters. What would it take for you to establish a new political party is one question. Talk about that another day. It's not an easy thing to do.